0: Our Father, we thank You again for Your Word. It is nourishment to our souls. And so we ask You humbly today, Lord, as we come to Your Word, please, please show us Your greatness. Please use Your Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts to understand how great You truly are, how faithful You are, and how Your plans are never thwarted. Give us understanding. Give us conviction. Teach us, O Lord, that we may glorify Christ in all that we do. In His name we pray. Amen. You know, one of the great doctrines, one of my favorites anyway, that came out of the Protestant Reformation is the doctrine that we refer to as the perseverance of the saints. Um, some people remember, uh, I, I personally like to use the word preservation of the saints since it is God's work that preserves us. It's His grace that preserves us in the faith. Um, but you know some people would would also refer to this as the doctrine of once saved, always saved." Have you guys heard that most people are familiar with that saying "Once saved, always saved I would suggest uh, to start today, I would suggest that there is actually a slight but very significant difference between the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints and the doctrine of once saved, always saved um, you see there 's this indication, there's this understanding when a person says that they believe in once saved, always saved, that once a person does something, maybe they they say the sinner's prayer, or maybe they they fill out a card, or maybe they, they come forward for an altar call to accept Christ, you know, whatever it is, that person who has made some kind of profession of faith, is saved and will remain saved no matter what happens in their life, no matter what decisions they make from that point forward. So a person can just go through the motions and say, you know, re- recite the sinner's prayer or, or do whatever and then walk away from the faith completely. Never to return, never going to church, never praying, never growing in their walk with the Lord and still claim to be saved. When you hear people refer to once saved, always saved, this is what kind of the idea that, that is understood. It's called easy believism, and that is not the testimony of Scripture at all. That isn't a biblical understanding of salvation at all, or of the security of our salvation. But the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, or the preservation of the saints, on the other hand, is understood very differently. And while the differences might seem very slight, they are significant. The doctrine of the preservation or the perseverance of the saints doesn't teach that a person can do something and be saved and remain saved no matter what they do from that point forward. Instead, it affirms that God will actively cause the true convert, the true believer to remain in the faith. And not only to remain in the faith until the end, but also to grow to grow in their walk with Christ and to grow in their hatred and in their, their, their uh, turning away from sin. And so with this view, if a person makes a profession of faith some type of profession of faith at 10 years of age but then walks away from the faith never to return. We would say with the apostle John uh in 1 John chapter 2 verse 19 that they went out from us but they were not really of us for if they had been of us they would have remained with us but they went out so that it would be shown that they are uh, that they all are not of us. And keep in mind here that when John writes this He's writing about people who had made a profession of faith in Christ. But their profession of faith in Christ was false. And that's why they walked away, to show that their profession was false. A couple of years before the death of John Newton, uh, his vision had become so poor that he was no longer able to read uh, no longer able to read the Bible, no longer able to 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 read, uh, you know, notes for a sermon or anything like that. So every day at breakfast, a, a passage from Scripture would be read to him, and he'd do kind of a a short devotional type of, of sermonette on uh you know on that passage. And one day his text was First Corinthians fifteen ten, in which the Apostle Paul says, "But by the grace of God, I am what I am." And so rather than Just jumping into a mini sermon or sermonette as he normally would have, Newton is said to have paused, taken a brief pause uh, for, for some time before finally saying these words. He said, quote, I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil and I would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, Soon I shall put off mortality, and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet, though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say, I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. And I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this, friends, is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. It doesn't affirm our faithfulness unto God until the end as much as it affirms God's faithfulness to His people until the end. His faithfulness to abide with us. His faithfulness to grow us. His faithfulness to never let us slip from His hand. Once saved, always saved. That idea is kind of like, if you want a picture of it, it's kind of like if you can imagine a wild dog that doesn't have a leash, and yet, it's been called by the Master. What's it going to do? It's going to wander aimlessly and endlessly. Whereas, the perseverance of the saints, the doctrine of the preservation or perseverance of the saints, is like a wild dog that gets put on a leash that the Master continues to use. That the Master uses to teach and to tame the wild dog. And he doesn't allow that dog to wander off, to wander far. And this is what lies at the heart of the Apostle Peter's admonition to make our calling and election sure. He's basically saying, look at your life and see if you're a wild dog that's wandering aimlessly and endlessly. Or, can you look back on your life and see a pattern in which the good master has taught you? and tamed you so that you aren't constantly pulling that leash to the end of its range. Jacob's life has been like that in a lot of ways. He's like a wild dog that keeps pulling the leash to the, to the end of its capacity His life has been one of many hardships and trials. That's what he said to Pharaoh, if you remember, when he went before Pharaoh in the previous chapter, uh, chapter 47. In fact, we might liken Jacob to a wild dog who has just constantly been pulling at the leash, extending it to its fullest length for most of his life. And yet, what we saw in the 47th chapter of Genesis was a man whose heart and whose will had been tamed, and whose eyes and whose heart were steadily now fixed on the promises, the covenant promises of God. The testimony of John Newton was the same testimony that we would have gotten from Jacob in that last chapter. I'm not what I once was, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Jacob's natural inclination throughout his life up until chapter 47 was to fear was to walk in fear not faith it it was to doubt it was to swindle It, it was to get what he could as easily as he could but God's grace has worked steadily steadfastly in his life and it's by the grace of God that Jacob ends up being a great great model of faith so today we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 48 verses 1 to 11. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 48. This is a fantastic chapter. It's, been one of my, it's actually one of my favorite chapters in the entire book of Genesis because it shows the depths and the strength of the faith that God's grace has wrought through the fires in Jacob's heart. We've noted before that Jacob wasn't exactly the most likable person and that in a lot of ways, he was kind of like taking a glimpse in in the mirror for us because his flesh was just always so strong. His his flesh was always leading him and and, and causing him to do silly things. But in this chapter, the Spirit prevails over the flesh in such a spectacular way that the author of Hebrews, we'll just say it's Paul. I I think it was Paul. Uh, The author of Hebrews cites the events of this chapter when he highlights the faith of Jacob in the Hall of Faith in the book of Hebrews. But the central point of this passage that we'll be studying today is that it is a great blessing to be able to see our lives in the light of God's ever enduring, ever abiding faithfulness unto his people. What a blessing it is to have that perspective. Not only in good times, but also in hardships, in trials, in tribulations. To have this perspective makes all the difference. Chapter 47 ended with Jacob sensing that the end of his life was near, if you remember. He's kind of on his deathbed and he calls Joseph in. And he begs Joseph basically to take an oath to swear that he will bury his bones in Machpelah in Canaan, rather than burying his bones in Egypt. And we saw that that was an indication of the faith that God had built up in Jacob's heart. He wholeheartedly believed God's promises, and he he walked in them. He walked in faith. And he had personally, if you remember, he, he personally testified to the power and the grace of God before Pharaoh. He had personally witnessed the faithfulness of God more times than we could possibly count. And so as death approaches, Jacob isn't this wild dog who's pulling the leash to its farthest capacity. He's been tamed. And it's not just a, a, a brief fleeting moment in which he's all of a sudden faithful just for a moment. No, he's now the kind of dog that finds comfort at the Master's feet. It's the type of faith that's mature and enduring. And it's by the grace of God that he has it. But after swearing this oath to his father at the end of chapter 47, Joseph, he's a working man. He had things to do, and so he returned to his duties and left Jacob's side. And that's where we pick up in our passage today. So let's just start by looking at the first two verses of Genesis chapter 48. It says, Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel... Note the use of the name Israel. Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. So obviously, uh, Jacob's health was starting to deteriorate at the end of chapter 47, and it's continued to do that. Uh, Joseph had work to do. Uh, You know, the the country was no longer in the midst of a famine. Uh, Do you remember how long the famine was going to last? seven years, right? It was going to last seven years. Uh, and it was in the middle of those seven years that Jacob uh, had been brought into Egypt by his sons when, uh, when Joseph uh, wanted to bless them and provide for them. Uh, but let's also remember that Jacob spent 17 years in Egypt. That's what we learned in, in the previous chapter. So we're actually at the end of those 17 years. So the famine is more than 10 years behind us at this point. Joseph isn't dealing with the famine anymore, but he's still a high-ranking official in Egypt. He's still basically the viceroy of Egypt. And apparently, somebody, uh, somebody brought the news to Joseph. Joseph had apparently um, asked someone to let him know if his father's health uh, got much worse. And finally, that day did come, and he receives word that his father, Jacob, is ill and doesn't have much longer to live. And so Joseph quickly gathers his two oldest sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and they set off for Goshen. Now, I don't, I don't want to do any spoilers or anything here. I don't want to you know ruin the story for you. But I'll say that the purpose of Joseph going to Goshen with his two oldest sons is, first and foremost, to receive a blessing. But they receive much more than we might be expecting. And we'll see that as the story unfolds. But there are a couple things that we should understand about the giving of a blessing in Hebrew culture. The blessing was a deeply, deeply important uh, occasion. It wasn't just a, a prayer that you, that you casually mutter. It wasn't just a prayer that the father gives to his sons or, or, or to, you know, grandfather gives to his grandchildren or anything like that. Rather, it was viewed as the literal imparting or, or maybe even imputation of blessing, of blessedness to the recipient. And so once that was given, once the, the words came out, once the blessing was spoken, it was irrevocable. It couldn't be taken back. And that's why it was so scandalous when Jacob swindled the blessing away from his brother. You remember that Isaac had wanted to give it to Esau, give the blessing to Esau, but Isaac inadvertently gave it to Jacob, and Isaac couldn't just take it back. He'd already spoken it. It was irrevocable. He couldn't take it back. The only way for Esau to regain it would have been for Jacob to die, which is why Esau vowed to murder him. But eventually, you'll remember that Esau accumulated so much worldly wealth, he couldn't care less about the blessing. He just... completely forgot about it, and forgave Jacob for taking what to him seemed like a worthless blessing. So we should also remember that Jacob has been in Egypt for almost two decades, 17 years, and that Ephraim and Manasseh had been born before Jacob arrived. So how old are they now? How old are Joseph's two oldest sons now? We don't have an exact number, but we can guess that they are 20 or so. They're, they're probably about 20 years old and jacob, who 's now one hundred and forty seven years of age, gets word when Joseph arrives, and so he conjures up all the strength that he can that he has left in his body for this monumentous occasion and We can imagine you know what the people around. Uh, Jacob's bedside would have been saying to him, you know, oh, stay in bed and rest, Jacob. You know, Joseph and his sons will come to you. You're too weak, Dad. Just stay laying down. But this is the moment that Jacob has been waiting for. He was eager to bless uh, Joseph's sons. And that's important to see. He was eager to bless Joseph's sons. That's an indication of his maturity. But he doesn't just bless Joseph's sons. He's also eager to testify to the greatness of God's ever-abiding faithfulness. See, Jacob's life hasn't been filled with a lot of mountaintops, so to speak. Spiritual mountaintops, high points, moments of, of great faith. But the author of Hebrews says of this occasion in, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21, He writes, by faith Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. One commentator notes of of Jacob's great moment of faith here, saying, quote, like a runner who'd been outdistanced by others, he now got his second wind and swept them all, taking the prize, end quote. So one detail I want us to see uh, from that verse in Hebrews is that the author of Hebrews sees this event, sees this this occasion in Jacob's life as an act of worship on Jacob's part. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. You see, friends, to believe what God says to believe His word, to set our hearts and our minds on God's promises in faith, to see Your life in the light of God's sovereign and providential care, in His goodness—these are all acts of worship. I think it's it's easy for us to mistakenly think that you know when you talk about worship that it refers to the time that we spend singing uh, singing psalms and hymns and and spiritual songs and and that should be worshipful don't don't make any mistake about it It, it's uh, that that should be an element of our worship but ultimately worship is what happens anytime your heart and your mind are rightly tuned to God so not only is singing a song worship but listening to a sermon is worship Reading your Bible is worship. Praying is worship. Setting your mind and your heart on the promises of God. Those are all things that you can include under the category of worship. What matters is what's going on in your heart. Is your heart being turned to God? That's that's what worship is. And Jacob has become a worshipful man. This is one occasion where we can say better late than never, right? Right? It only took him 147 years, but he gets there. But Jacob didn't get there on his own. It wasn't by his own strength. What he was, what he had become by the end of his life, it was all by the grace of God. And the most beautiful thing about that is, as he gives his testimony, it's very evident that he knows it. He knows that it's all the grace of God that has grown him, that's matured him, that's held him tight. He knew it. He knew it was the grace of God. And you know, that's, a, that's the perspective that we need, isn't it? Wouldn't you like to have that perspective when your time comes? Because make no mistake about it, your, your time is coming. My time is coming. Our time is coming. But here's the thing, we don't know when our time is coming. And so, putting on this proverbial lens, so to speak, that is learning to see and, and truly believe that God has been gracious and good to us in every circumstance of life, it has to start before you get to the finish line. You have to put that lens on before you get to the end. And this is one of the major themes of Genesis, that God is sovereign and that He's good, that He provides for us and, uh, and, and He's with us uh, to the end. And Jacob, of all people, Jacob is the one who models this for us, who illustrates this for us, who, who teaches us here. And friends, it's no exaggeration to say that having this perspective, having, having the right perspective, the biblical perspective, makes all the difference. let's listen to to Jacob's testimony let's listen to what he says as his grandsons arrive to be blessed Uh, let's look at verses 3 to 11 it says then Jacob said to Joseph God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and he said to me behold I will make you fruitful and numerous And I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are, but your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. Now, as for me, when I came to Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. So he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. So Israel, or Jacob, takes this moment to testify to the greatness and the goodness of God from beginning to end. From the beginning of of his walk with the Lord to the end. Here's the first thing that I I think we need to see here. Look at verse 3. He's giving his personal testimony here. There's some history here. He's talking about his life, his walk with the Lord. And as he starts his testimony, whom does it start with according to Jacob? It started with God. It started with God. God is the one who took the initiative. Jacob did not seek God. Jacob never would have sought God. Jacob was a swindler. He was looking out for himself. He didn't want God. But God wanted him. And God sought him. And Jacob knows it. He knows that God is the one who initiated it. His journey with God started with God. And now look down at verse 11. He, he basically comes up to the, to the present moment, to the moment that he's, he's giving this blessing. He comes down to the present moment, and, and, and who brought him there? God did. Who had blessed him with this opportunity to see Joseph again, and to see Joseph's two oldest sons? God. God began it, and He knows that God has got him to the point that he's at, and he knows that God will be with him to the end. And there's a very, very important application here. Do you see it? It's not really that difficult. It's actually pretty simple and straightforward. And it's this, that like Jacob, we have to learn to see that our walk with the Lord begins and ends with Him. It's all by grace. And what a great blessing it is to have the divine wisdom and maturity to see life with this perspective. This is the perspective that every single one of us needs, friends. I fear that far too many people, when they, when they think about their walk with the Lord, they see it as something that may have started with Him, but then they feel like God has just kind of up and abandoned them and hands off on their lives. But the testimony here and the testimony throughout Scripture is that that is completely wrong. That God is with us through the entire journey until the very end. And this is not the way that Jacob started off, is it? Our first glance at at Jacob's life came before he was converted. You remember what happened? Let's think back to the first time uh, we, we saw him, we saw that the name of, of God appear on his lips. It was while he was still a mama's boy living with his parents. His mother had encouraged him to deceive his father into giving, uh, giving him, giving Jacob, the blessing that Isaac had intended to give to Esau, despite the fact that God had already made it clear that the blessing was going to go to Jacob. And so there's an element of sin and, and rebellion in Isaac's life there, trying to defy the will of God uh, but God can take the evil intentions of Jacob and his mother to deceive Isaac and use them to accomplish his purposes and so Jacob put on some of Esau's garments you'll remember and he covered parts of, of of his arms and his neck with goat skins and then he came to his blind father and claimed to be Esau he came with wild game which is what Isaac had sent Esau out to go and get and when Isaac becomes suspicious of the fact that he came back so quickly, he basically asks, you know, how did you do that so fast? How did you get this game so quickly? Do you remember what Jacob said? He said this. He took the name, the, uh, the name of the Lord in vain. He said this. He said, the Lord your God, not my God, the Lord your God, caused it to happen to me. That's what we saw back in Genesis chapter uh, 27 verse 20. Do you understand how that's taking the Lord's name in vain? Because he was lying about what God had done. He he was using the name of God to perpetuate a deceitful scheme out of selfish ambition. But when Esau came home and, and found out that the blessing that Isaac had given to Jacob, uh, had been been taken, he vows to murder Jacob, right? So Jacob runs away to live with his uncle Laban at his mother's uh, request. But along the way to Haran, which is where Laban lived, Jacob sleeps under the open night sky with nothing but a staff to his his name and the, the clothes on his back. And he's in the vicinity of a city called Luz, which he renamed Bethel which means the house of God, if you remember. And it was there in Luz, there at this place that would be renamed Bethel, that God first appeared to Jacob in a vision, giving Jacob a vision of this ladder, of Jacob's ladder, the ladder that uh, extends from, from heaven's ladder down to earth, and there are angels ascending and descending this ladder, and at the top of this ladder stands the Lord. And so, his response after this, Is faith, right? He did have faith. You remember that Jacob did believe. But even after all these years, he recalls not only the vision, but he recalls everything that God had promised him there that night. He promised to be with Jacob, he promised to protect Jacob, he promised that he would provide for Jacob. And he brought us to the second time that his tongue uttered the name of the Lord. His response back then was to wake up from his vision and declare, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. That's from Genesis 28, 16. And he didn't take the Lord's name in vain that time, did he? That was actually the first time in Jacob's life that he hadn't spoken the name of the Lord in vain. It was the first time he spoke the Lord's name with faith and reverence and yet that was all the way back in chapter 28 and between chapter 28 and chapter 47 we can't help but say that jacob was hardly an admirable character at all his faith was constantly less than profound I mean, he did trust in God's promises, he did, he did have faith in God's promises, but his faith was so inclined to fold any time it was held to the fire of life's tribulations or trials. Jacob hadn't always stayed close to God. Jacob hadn't always been faithful to God. And that's what we saw between chapters uh, 28 and 47. His flesh was so strong. And it would often lead him to, to do and say just foolish, ungodly things. But at the end of his life, as he's laying there on his deathbed, all of that has changed. And it was all the grace of God. Truly, Jacob was able to declare that he might not be what he wanted to be, But what he was, he was by the grace of God alone. Jacob hadn't always been close to God. He hadn't always been faithful to God. But God had always been close to Jacob. And God had always been faithful to Jacob. And all of it, every moment, was just sheer, unmerited grace on God's part. And so Jacob is using this occasion to testify... So the awesomeness of God's sanctifying grace, saving and sanctifying grace, and the faithfulness of the one who called him. Now, why do you think that on that Jacob takes this occasion? I mean, he's weak. Uh, he, he could die any minute here. So why do you think he wanted to do this so badly on this particular occasion? He hasn't said the blessing yet. That's the purpose of them being there. So why do you think he's giving his testimony? Why do you think he's, he's sharing testimony to the, to the greatness of God's faithfulness? I think it might be because he realized how bad he had miffed it with his own son's. Uh, His flesh constantly got in the way. His flesh constantly prevented him from passing on a godly spiritual heritage to his own sons. The fact that Joseph and and probably Benjamin uh, broke that trend, it, it it wasn't Jacob's doing. It was all by the grace of God also, wasn't it? Now, I don't know about you, but when I die, and I will die someday. Unless the Lord comes back before then, I will die. But when that day comes, I want to leave something behind for my kids. And, and yeah, you know, I, I hope to have provided for them financially. Yes, I, I hope to have provided for them, you know, materially, um, maybe educationally. But these are all things that can be lost, these are all things that can just be, you know, forgotten these are all things that can be tarnished. If I provide them with all these things, but don't provide them with a godly spiritual direction, I will leave them one day with nothing of eternal significance. Our children ultimately do have to deal with God when it comes to their salvation. We can't force them to be saved. That's between The individual and God. And and we trust in that. And we understand also that there are godly parents who sometimes have children that turn out to be very ungodly and very, very rebellious. But there are also rebellious parents who sometimes, by the grace of God, end up with very godly children. But that is no excuse for us to not put forth every effort to giving our kids spiritual direction. Let us see the importance of doing everything within our power to bless our children by leaving them with a rich and godly spiritual Christian heritage. There's nothing more important that you can leave behind than that. One of the surest signs of of maturity in a believer is a desire to bless others and to do so unconditionally. Think, Think of what James says about Uh, the way that we should be treating orphans and and widows. You know what orphans and widows have in common and what they can't do? They can't do anything back for you. You can scratch their back, but they can't scratch yours back. So it has to be unconditional. The, The way that you bless them has to be unconditional. It's just for the sake of blessing them because they have nothing to offer. So helping people like that is a, is a practice in blessing unconditionally. And Jacob has that kind of maturity here. He wants to bless. There's, there's nothing that they can give to him because he already has it all. He's got the promises of God. He's got an incredible faith in those promises. But Jacob wants to make sure that his grandchildren and his grandchildren's grandchildren don't end up like he started. Compare this Jacob with the Jacob that we saw at the beginning, who's just a selfish swindler. He's come a long way, and so Jacob wants to make sure that the final impression that his grandchildren and his sons have of him is that he was a man who had great faith in the faithfulness and the grace of God. This is part of the blessing, in a way, if you think about it, because they would need this kind of faith. They would need this kind of spiritual, godly heritage to pass on to their own children and grandchildren. They would need this to know that they could stand firm on the promises of God over the course of the next 400 years, at the end of which they would be slaves in Egypt and would have to be Would have to partake of this exodus out of Egypt. Don't you think our kids need the same thing? That kind of faith. They absolutely do. You know, if if your kids uh, are in school, uh, how many hours a day do they spend in the classroom learning secular humanism, learning things that are very opposed to Scripture, learning worldly ideologies and then they come home after school and they spend how many hours either in maybe in front of the TV or maybe you know browsing the internet or Facebook or Twitter or 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 whatever where are they getting godly influence in the midst of all that they must get it from you parents they must get it from you cuz they're not going to get it from anybody else you are their Discipler, you are their pastor. Before me, you are your kid's pastor. They have to be learning these things from you. Because coming to church for one hour a week versus the 40 hours a week that they spend learning secular humanism, that one hour isn't going to cut it. It's just not. You are have to pass this on intentionally to your kids there's nothing more important to pass on to them than a heritage of godliness ultimately yes their salvation is between them and the lord but the question is are you doing everything within your power to train them up in the way that they should go in accordance with the principles of the bible Are you doing everything within your power to teach them to destroy worldly ideologies and worldly philosophies and to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ? Will your children and your grandchildren remember you as a father or remember you as a mother whose greatest desire in life was to live their life in the presence of God under the authority of God for the glory of God? Let this be the way they remember you, friends. And be intentional about it. Be eager to bless them in this way as Jacob is. This is Jacob's concern at this point. But he's not done. In verse 5, he actually uh, says something. He He basically says something that might seem kind of confusing. He basically asks Joseph, but it's less of, a, of, a, of an ask than it is a demand. But he asks Joseph if he can adopt Manasseh and Ephraim as his own sons. He says, they shall be mine. Your other sons, those are yours. But these two are mine. I mean, these are young men who are capable of supporting themselves. In, in their Egyptian home, they, they've got everything this world has to offer that they could possibly want. But let's make sure that we understand exactly why Jacob is doing this and and what he's doing and why he's doing it. He's ensuring that Manasseh and Ephraim become identified with the people of God, with the covenant promises of God, with the house of Israel, rather than identifying with the world. Rather than identifying with the people of Egypt. Do you see that? If they become Jacob's sons, they're identifying with this this, this refugee uh, shepherd whom the Egyptians hate, whom they loathe in fact, Jacob, Israel is making sure that they identify with the covenant promises of God rather than the fleeting promises of the world. And Joseph doesn't say anything. He, has, he apparently has no objections. In fact, it seems that this is exactly what he was expecting Jacob to do. After all, Joseph does have other sons that are referred to here, but Joseph didn't bring those sons with him. He only brought Manasseh and Ephraim. They will be called the sons of Israel, while Joseph's other sons will remain his. And so as the sons of, of, of the viceroy of, of Egypt and, and the daughter of the high pagan priest, who remember that's that's who Joseph married, the daughter of the high pagan priest, There would have been a very strong temptation and there would have been every door open for these guys to become very worldly men. Very powerful, very affluent, very influential men in the most powerful and the richest country in the world at the time. So both Jacob and Joseph are doing everything in their power to ensure that these men, these young men, his sons, identify with the people of God rather than with the people of the world. In the Hebrew text, the, uh, Jacob literally says, like Reuben and Simeon, they will be to me. In other words, Manasseh and Ephraim would take the places of Jacob's two oldest sons. First Chronicles 5.1 explains kind of exactly what happens for us. It says that Reuben, quote, was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. So let's remember that Joseph was the firstborn son of whom? Of Rachel, right? Rachel was was the love of Jacob's life. And Joseph was her firstborn son. And Jacob had worked 14 years just to have this girl's hand in marriage. She was the love of his life, and and as he claims, as as Jacob claims, Manasseh and Ephraim as his uh, as his own in the final moments of his life. It, it seems that he, he looked at Joseph and looked at the uh, the two sons, and he sees reflections of Rachel's face in theirs, and so he starts kind of going off on a tangent, going off on a on a trail, uh, as the elderly will commonly do when uh, fond memories or painful memories are triggered. So he remembers the day when they, were, when they were traveling and she was ready to give birth to Benjamin and so they pulled over to the, to the side of the road and they set up a tent and they go in and they're, they're ready to, to, to deliver the, who would become Benjamin and in giving birth, Rachel died on the road to Ephrath which would become known as Bethlehem. But as one commentator notes, quote, now Rachel's Firstborn son Joseph could extend her line by giving uh, by Joseph giving his sons to Jacob as direct heirs. End quote. If you think about it, the the amount of time that he spent working for Rachel's hand in marriage, and the the, the limited number of children she was able to bear for him, and her sudden and unexpected death—these are all things that could have have made. Jacob become a very angry, very bitter man toward God. But here's the thing, his confidence that all that he had and that all that he was was all the grace of God prevented bitterness, prevented anger from festering in his heart. He believed God's promises. He knew that God was with him. He knew that nothing could transpire in his life, could take place in his life, that God did not either cause or allow. Could God have prevented Rachel from dying? Of course He could have. So Jacob's confidence in God's promises is what comforts him. He knew that God was with him. He he had this perspective on life, on, on life's sorrows, that would have uprooted any bitterness, any anger, any discontentment that he might have had in the wake of Rachel's death. He felt sorrow, yes, but the confidence he had in God brought him great comfort. Friends, as your pastor, as your shepherd, as the one who's been given the task of giving you spiritual nourishment on a weekly basis by preaching the Word of God as the one who would be by your bedside tomorrow if you were to fall ill unto death. I want so badly for that moment when I stand beside you and some of you I may stand beside as you slip unto death. I want so badly for you to have this perspective. For you to see That God is so good. That every circumstance that you've experienced in life has been by the grace of God. And that who you are at the end, it's all the grace of God. I want you to see all of life through this lens that God is sovereign. That God has providentially cared for you and shaped you and grown you in the likeness of Christ by grace in every aspect of your life. The final part of this passage starts off on kind of a strange note. Jacob looks at uh, the two sons. He looks at Manasseh and Ephraim and he says, who are these? That seems kind of weird because it seems like one minute He's saying, uh, I want to adopt these two. And then the next minute, he's saying, I have no idea who these people even are. Uh, but it's not a case of dementia onset or anything like that. Rather, uh, as I learned, because that's what I was thinking. I was like, is he losing his mind here or what? But as I do it, started doing some research, I found out that this was actually uh, kind of a formality in the adoption process. Much like a wedding will start with, uh, you know, the minister asking who gives this woman, to be wed to this man. So Joseph acknowledges that they are his sons by the grace of God. They were given to him by God. Notice, he has the same perspective that Jacob has on life. They both recognize that the greater treasure is found in the covenant promises of God rather than in the fleeting power and the fleeting material treasures that this world has to offer. That Egypt would have had to offer. And he draws Manasseh and Ephraim near to him. And he embraces them and he, he, he hugs them and he kisses them, which many commentators believe uh, signifies the completion of the adoption process. Now you, you might wonder why, uh, why Joseph would even consent to this. Why would he give his sons to a dying man? Well, first of all, these guys are more than capable of providing for themselves. They're, like I said, they're about 20 years old. But ultimately, it's because he wants them to be identified with God's people rather than with the Egyptian people, rather than with the world. I mean, they could have risen to, to prominence. They could have become very powerful men in their own right, learning, uh, learning to do the things of the world, the way the world does things, only for them to go to hell when they die. Or, they could identify with the covenant promises of God unto the people of God, and they could learn to trust in the promises of God, and they could have a walk with the Lord that would eventually lead them to heaven. And so it's a no-brainer for Joseph. He chooses an eternal inheritance for them. And so this passage reminds us of how important it is. Not only to have this perspective of life where we see all of life as being by God's grace. That who we are and who we become is all the grace of God. Yes, it does remind us of that. But it also reminds us to leave a godly, spiritual, Christian heritage with those who matter the most to us. And that takes time. It, takes, it can take years. It takes intentionality. It takes grace. You can do it all, and if there's no grace, it's not going to happen. This is all an element of the spiritual maturity that is wrought by God's faithfulness to His people. The reason that Jacob wants to do this is because God has matured him to this point. And it's true with us too. But it needs to start with you. And it needs to start with the way that you see God and you see yourself and you see your life. Do you see your need for grace? Do you see that it's by God's grace that you are who you are? Do you believe yourself that God is faithful? And does your life story, when you consider your life in retrospect, does your life story testify first and foremost to God's unwavering, ever-abiding faithfulness? Can you join with Paul the Apostle Paul and John Newton, and countless others in affirming, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. If you've repented and put your faith in Christ Jesus, who is the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant promises of God, if you have repented and put your faith for salvation in Him, you have been promised a great, great inheritance. And it's not a financial inheritance that can be lost or tarnished. No, it is an eternal spiritual inheritance that can never be lost or tarnished. Ephesians 1.11 says this, it says, We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. There's an inheritance there. He goes on to say it again. He goes on to talk about that the proof of this is the Holy Spirit within us who is, quote, given as a pledge of our inheritance. He says in verses 18 and 19, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of of His power toward us who believe. Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. That's something I can get excited about. God's faithfulness is something that I can get excited about. The fact that He will preserve me in His hand, that He will hold me until the end, is something that I find great comfort in and can get excited about. God is ever abiding and ever faithful to His people. Now you might look at your life and you might think that God wouldn't want you, or that God couldn't do anything with somebody like you because well, maybe, he, maybe He's not considering all the things that you've done. Maybe He's not considering exactly what kind of person you are. But Jacob is proof that God can take anyone at any point, no matter what you've done, and tame you. Tame your wild heart. Teach you to love Him. Teach you to long for Him. Teach you to stand on His covenant promises. When all is said and done, the Spirit will triumph over the flesh once and for all. And I can get excited about that. It's a great blessing, friends, to be able to see our lives with this perspective, to see our lives in the light of God's ever-enduring, ever-abiding faithfulness, unto His people. So let us look with faith to our inheritance, which is the Lord Christ Jesus Himself, and let us live and perceive our lives in the light of God's never-failing faithfulness. Let's pray. Most gracious Father, thank You for the assurance that we gain from a passage like this. For the assurance that You will finish the work in us that You completed. The promise that You will be faithful to all of Your promises. And You have promised that anyone who looks to Christ in faith and repents, coming to Him in a repenting faith, will be saved. That by the Spirit, we may call upon Him unto salvation. And so, Father, we thank You for your covenant promises. We thank you for a picture of your greatness and of your faithfulness in the life of Jacob. What confidence we can glean, Lord, to see the amazing difference you wrought in his life, the amazing transformation. And we pray, Lord, that you would do the same for us. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Teach us, Lord, to turn away from our sin. Prevent us from identifying with the world that we may identify with You as being called by You, of being purchased and ransomed by the blood of Christ for the glory of Christ to be demonstrated in our lives. In His name we pray. Amen.